The August 2nd election was a political earthquake in Kansas. The headline was a 59-41% vote against an amendment that would have allowed the legislature to ban abortion, but there were a host of other high-profile races as well. Uh, My name is Clay Wirestone. I'm the opinion editor at the Kansas Reflector, and for today's Reflector podcast, we are joined by editor-in-chief Sherman Smith and senior reporter Tim Carpenter. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Clay. Love to be here. So let's start with the biggest story, one that was picked up by national news media from coast to coast, and that is the um, thumping defeat, frankly, for the abortion amendment. Um, Thoughts about that? I think it's, it's hard to put into perspective what a surprise this was. I think nobody before Election Day predicted that we would have a a 19, 20-point margin on this. The only public polling we had suggested that it would be a very close race. Uh, and the what we'd heard about internal polling suggested that as well. Uh, nobody really knew going in which side was going to prevail. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I, I guess it seems a little more obvious that we should have known. Well, uh, to me, what, what comes to mind is that most of the time when we talk about Um, elections, we proceed from the assumption that there's an essentially 50-50 split, that that people are evenly divided, particularly on something high profile, and the campaigning knocks things a few points in one direction or the other, and that's what you're essentially reporting on in the aftermath, is how did you get those two or three percentage points, you know, either way. And I think what's remarkable about the abortion vote is that anything that you can talk about that might have kicked things a few points in either direction does not really account for this, you know, 19, 20 point margin. Like this really was saying something. And I think we're still coming to terms with just how loud of an expression that was. Yeah, this is Tim. I, I think that this beyond national interest, this, this garnered international interest. I, I was interviewed by BBC Scotland on this. So I think there were people around the world that kind of followed this Kansas vote, which is astonishing to me. Just a couple things to think about. The messaging was powerful, and the messaging from the opponents of this amendment appealed to independents, Democrats, and some Republicans. And that's how they, you came up with a, what, 160,000-person majority. Tons and tons and tons of money was spent on this, so you get plenty of opportunity to hear the messaging. There were a bunch of complaints about the messaging being confusing and misleading. That was a factor in this. I I think the polling was uh, an embarrassment. I'm not even sure polling works anymore. People are going to be honest about what they they really believe about an important amendment about this. The, the final thing that happened right before the vote was there was a PAC run by former uh, Kansas Congressman Tim Heelskamp that threw a bunch of money into uh, kind of bogus texts to, 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 to absolutely mislead people. And I just think that showed some level of desperation among the advocates of the amendment to, to go to that length. When, when they were telling everyone they were the honest, they were the straightforward, they, they were the people to trust. So I found a little bit of irony in that. Yeah. And Tim, I think you really you hit the nail on the head when talking about the fact that this was the folks uh, who voted down the amendment. It was a coalition of uh, Democrats, independents and Republicans. And 
I think, you know, I wrote a piece that uh, we published today about kind of dumb takes about the amendment. It was largely uh, focused on dumb takes from the pro pro uh, life side, but honestly, I think there's a lot of dumb takes from people on the left who are who somehow you know cast the victory cast the amendment's defeat as a victory for Joe Biden. I don't think anybody in Kansas saw it that way, thought about the vote that way. They saw it as something that transcended politics. After the the election, the you know, the people who had worked on the campaign to defeat the amendment. They really emphasized the message discipline that they had in this. They wanted it to be about one thing only, which was this is an attack on your rights. This is about a ban. You know, don't let the government tell you what you can and can't do. And, you know, I think if you're able to reduce an issue to simply being about freedom, you know, the, the right to bodily autonomy, the right to what, whatever it is, free, freedom is a, is a strong message. If I could just step forward briefly. The governor's race is going to have implications on how abortion policy goes in the future. Laura Kelly is pro-choice. Derek Schmidt, the Republican candidate, is is pro-life. You know, the this will be debated in the Kansas legislature in the 2023 session. We'll see what the, the Republican majority comes up with. But before we even get there, six of seven members of the Kansas Supreme Court are up for retention votes. And I would assume that the uh, proponents of abortion regulations are going to come after them and speak to this again, and we'll have a general election debate about abortion policy as it relates to the Kansas Supreme Court, which is the group of people that uh, wrote an opinion that established and affirmed this right to bodily autonomy you mentioned and which extended to the right to abortion. And that's, I think, what kind of the next step that a lot of folks in the, in the media and political class are wondering about and, and looking towards. But, Tim, you mentioned that, um, that governor's race. So let's, let's uh, take a moment now and recognize that a bunch of other things were voted on uh, on August 2nd as well. So, as you say, we had a, um, a governor's primary uh, just setting up, as expected, a contest between Democrat, uh, Democratic incumbent Laura Kelly and the Republican Attorney General Derek Schmidt. So uh, what's... And, and possibly a spoiler. Yes. Well, so Sherman, talk a little bit about that. Well, Dennis Pyle is a state senator from Hiawatha. He's been in the legislature for a long time, long enough that he served when both Derek Schmidt and Laura Kelly were also in the Senate with him. And uh, he, he was a Republican until earlier this year. He's now running as an independent because he believes, as that Senate record demonstrates, that... There's not much distance between Derek Schmidt and Laura Kelly on the political spectrum. He thinks, uh, as he puts it, Derek Schmidt is too liberal. And so he's running. Uh, he's, he gathered the signatures he needed. You have to have 5,000. He gathered 9,000 with a lot of help from Democrats because they know that having him on the ballot would only take votes away from Derek Schmidt. We saw Republicans late last week, uh, you know, again, some funny business with text. The Republican Party put out a text blast to all the Republicans who signed that uh, petition for for Dennis Pyle and asked them to pull their name off. Uh, Republicans are, are almost certain to challenge the validity of his list, um, so it's it's uncertain yet whether he will be on the ballot. But if he does, that, you know, that doesn't necessarily hand Laura Kelly a victory, but it makes it much more difficult for Derek Schmidt. I think you're right, Sherman, that the Kansas Republican Party is very concerned about the presence of Dennis Pyle peeling votes away from Derek Schmidt. 
because Senator Pyle is going to say, I'm a real conservative, and he absolutely has a conservative track record in the legislature, uh, to the consternation of some of his peers in the, in the Senate. And so he's going to attack Derek Schmidt as, as a moderate, as a moderate uh, attorney general and, and former state senator. So that, that is just going to hurt Derek Schmidt. And so the, the Republican apparatus is trying to get rid of Dennis Pyle. And I think every time they say something harsh about him, it, it gets a hair up on the back of his neck, and he's more excited about running as an independent. You know, there was a time after the, you know, during the pandemic, I should say, when I think people thought that Laura Kelly's chances of winning this race were, were very low. But, I, you know, the further you can get away from COVID and the more that she can make this race about the, you know, the state's finances, how, how much better the state's finances are now than when she took office four years ago, uh, the investments in highways and broadband, the developments all around the state, um, the Panasonic plant that's coming in to DeSoto, you know, there's a lot of good things that she can talk about. And I think it's gonna be a, a close race regardless, or certainly closer than we would have thought a year ago. Well, and I, I think too, Sherman, this is uh, Clay, uh, one of the things that I've, I've mentioned uh, before about Derek Schmidt's campaign is that it's, he's really running a campaign in many ways as a generic Republican. He's not, he's not putting a lot of very particular kind of Schmidt-isms into it. It's kind of the thought that Kansas is naturally Republican. I'm a broadly acceptable Republican. And, and as, you were, um, as you were saying, Tim, the pile messaging really disrupts that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both Laura Kelly and Derek Schmidt coasted in their primaries. The one thing I would note that I just feel is odd, and I don't know the real explanation, is Laura Kelly in the primary won 94% of the vote, but Derek Schmidt just got 81%. And a candidate who had been arrested for making a terroristic threat against a law enforcement officer took 19% from Derek Schmidt. It's incredible. And so it just makes me wonder if some Republicans just don't want to don't want to vote for the guy that most people want, you know. And does that will that make them vote for Dennis Pyle? It's just a puzzling. Who, who Dennis Pyle has a has very uphill battle here. He is a dark horse in this race. Yet they might vote for Dennis Pyle, and that would be the detriment of Derek Schmidt. Absolutely. Um, uh, Speaking about a race that was actually super close, which I think some folks, uh, you know, assumed the abortion amendment might be, but the the squeaker, the incredibly close race uh, on, on Tuesday was for state treasurer on the Republican side uh, between uh, state rep Stephen Johnson and state senator Karen Tyson. So Tim, you were giving me some talking about some of the how close how close the divide actually is right now. Yeah, right. The latest Secretary of State numbers say that they both are in the 215,000 vote range. So Stephen Johnson is ahead by 375 votes at the moment, out of 430,000 cast, <clears throat> which is a remarkably close race. I mean, it, 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 why why would the state be so divided on these people? I don't know. Stephen Johnson and Karen Tyson are both rural legislators. They have a long track record in the state house. Um, Stephen Johnson had these very colorful ads where he had some explosions and some other weird stuff going on. Karen Tyson, I think, took a more traditional approach to to her candidacy. 
So in, in, a, in a way, they are similar, and maybe neither of them were overwhelmingly persuasive among Republican voters. So whoever wins this, at some point, they're going to get a count, and somebody's going to win. You just got to win by one. They're going to take on uh, the current state treasurer, Democrat Lynn Rogers. You know, Lynn Rogers is already putting out, uh, you know, campaign statements that say we don't even have an opponent yet. You know, the message is kind of like, give us money so we can get ahead before they even get started. Uh, you know, we we don't know how many provisional ballots are are out there. We there usually are thousands in in these elections, and that's ultimately going to decide this this treasurer's race uh, because the margin is so tight. And these are people who you know maybe there's a question about the signature on their mail-in ballots. They forgot to bring their ID to the poll. Maybe they moved within the county but forgot to update where they they live now. Um, these are all people who can have their ballots counted if they show up in time. Um, make it you know, clear before the, the canvassing happens. Uh, the irony here is that the Secretary of State, Scott Schwab, uh, because of a, a feud with uh, what he believes to be a liberal activist and the ACLU, has been uh, stonewalling efforts to get the provisional ballot list, which usually you would use to go engage with these people and say, hey, you can have your ballot counted if you go back, show up, Go in, but um, you know, even though courts have told him that what what he is doing is wrong, Schwab has refused to turn it over. You know, that's a list that Republicans would probably like to have right now. Yeah, and you mention Secretary of State uh, with um, Scott Schwab. He um, he did manage to secure his party's uh, nomination, but it was, I think, a lot a little tighter than folks expected, right? Yes, Scott Schwab was the incumbent Republican, and he was running against Mike Brown, who's a former Johnson County commissioner, but also uh, an advocate of the idea that Donald Trump had the 2020 election stolen from him. And so his ads were all about election security, and he tried to claim that Scott Schwab was doing a terrible job of that. And I think Schwab, uh, he embraced some reforms that were actually uh, questioned by liberals, but also Scott Schwab said that he believes Kansas' elections were fair and accurate. But uh, Mike Brown uh, took this route that says everything's, everything is unfair and there's cheating all over the place, a lot of conspiracy theory stuff. And so in the end, Schwab got 55% of the vote to Brown's 45%. And uh, that just it, that's a 10 percentage point difference, but that is still closer than, uh, than some of these other primaries that involved an incumbent. It's one of the reasons why Schwab has to wage war with the ACLU is to protect his credentials as a conservative Republican because he was vulnerable to a far-right attack from somebody, you know, frankly, I would say Brown was just flat-out lying about election integrity for personal gain, uh, and so Schwab had to defend himself against that. Well, and if you look across the nation, frankly, in terms of other states' elections that were held that same night, you did see a number of other folks that, you know, pushed election conspiracy theories actually winning their races. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of people who are big fans of of Donald Trump, uh, we also had a a, a state uh, attorney general race to replace Derek Schmidt. And uh, once and future candidate uh, Chris Kobach uh, took that uh, spot on the Republican side. So. Right. So in the attorney general's race, the, the Democrat lone uh, candidate was Chris Mann, a Lawrence uh, attorney and former police officer who got tragically got 
run over by a DUI driver, and that's part of his kind of interesting narrative of public service. So he's a Democratic nominee. But then you had a three-way race between Chris Kobach, who we know is the former Secretary of State, has run for governor, run for the U.S. Senate unsuccessfully, a State Senator Kelly Warren, who is more of a newcomer. Um, she ran an important Judiciary Committee uh, in, the, in the Senate, but doesn't have a lot of courtroom experience. And then the third candidate was Tony Mativi, who's a former U.S. prosecutor who prosecuted very important national terrorism cases and cases in Kansas and had, no doubt, the most experienced trial experience in the courtroom. And as it shook out, uh, Chris Kobach got 42% of the vote, Kelly Warren 38, and Tony Mativi 20. So Chris Kobach will be on the November ballot in the uh, AG's race. Yeah, the entire Republican establishment put their support behind Kelly Warren because they dislike Chris Kobach so much. It'll be curious to see if they're just, you know, willing to look the other way and, and turn their attention to the other races now uh, and live with the possibility that a Democrat could actually win that race or if they'll hold their nose and, and go ahead and back Chris Kobach, who has, you know, been complaining about the swamp in Topeka, the bucking the system, beating the, the system, all of those those things, you know, his his campaign right now though is beat is sue Joe Biden, and you know you just wonder what what kind of uh, support he can get in a statewide election from independents. How many Republicans are really going to support him? We saw what happened in the governor's race four years ago. He's the rare candidate who has more people who disapprove of him than approve. It's going to be very interesting in the race because the reason that the Kansas Chamber. Uh, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, U.S. Senator Roger Marshall, Americans for Prosperity, and other conservative groups endorsed Kelly Warren was that they believe Chris Kobach was unelectable, they said, unelectable in November. And the issue there is that Chris Kobach can definitely win these primaries, and he won two statewide races for Secretary of State, but when he ran for governor against Laura Kelly and in the primary uh, for U.S. Senate, he just couldn't get that collection of votes uh, kind of cross over maybe moderate Republican votes to, to get elected. So this question is, does Chris Kobach have another ceiling in the low 40s that would allow Chris Mann, the Democratic nominee, to sneak in there? And all Chris Mann and the Democrats have to say is, don't take it from us. Look at what the Republicans said about Chris Kobach. He is a threat to democracy, un unable to be elected. We can't have him as our attorney general. Yeah, that's the thing about if you have a competitive primary, I think the other side should always use those harsh comments made by those primary rivals who lost uh, in, in the Republican race. You should, you should somehow use those against the candidate. It seems like it's just like, uh, you know, the TV ad waiting to be had. Well, and it's also true, right, uh, Tim, that just from the basic math, the majority of Republicans did not vote for Chris Kobach uh, in, in the primary. No majority. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, but now the, the, the Republicans, uh, the idea was that they will coalesce around the GOP nominee. I mean, I think Chris Kobach would be certainly the front runner in that race as it stands right now. But we've got about 90 days to find out whether that changes. Well, and, and I do think there's the, the great irony or just something that, that I don't think a lot of people remarked on when looking at Kansas's result on Tuesday. Everyone was looking at this amendment failing, but the same vote where you have this abortion amendment fail is also the one that gets Chris Kobach back into the running for a statewide office. 
So that's a pretty. <laughs> it was a three-way race. I think the, the counter to that is the vote shows that a, a minimum of 20% of registered Republicans voted against the constitutional amendment. You have to wonder if that would translate roughly to 20% of registered Republicans would not vote for Chris Kobach in a general election. Yeah, I'm not sure you can make that leap. We're, we're, you know, this is the thing about these elections. You know, I, I'm, I think I'm suspicious of all polling. Mm-hmm. And until we get into November and the votes get counted, we don't know. Well, and we also do know from the just doing some basic kind of number crunching on the primary results that there were a lot of people who showed up to vote simply on the amendment right. and did not even touch the other races, even people who were registered to one party or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Tim, just looking here really quickly, you know, we've been talking about the statewide amendment, the statewide races, but we also have a couple of, we also have some congressional races that are, are coming up. Right. Kansas has four congressional districts. There are four incumbents running uh, in, for re-election. The, a couple of the districts have been changed, though, by the map. And that's going to affect, first of all, the third district race where incumbent Democrat Sharice Davis is running for re-election against Amanda Atkins. Davis beat Atkins two years ago. However, the district has been gerrymandered harshly to remove a lot of people who potentially could have voted for Sharice Davis. And and the Republicans in the legislature are trying to help Amanda Atkins prevail in this race. I I think it's still going to be a very, very tough battle. Uh, secondly, Jake LaTurner in the 2nd District is running as an incumbent Republican against a very young guy named Patrick Schmidt, who's a veteran and um, not a lot of political experience, but maybe that's to his advantage. Tracy Mann in the 1st District is from Salina, and he's running against a guy from Garden City. Uh, what's going to be interesting in Tracy Mann's race is that, for crying out loud, he represents all of western Kansas, but in the gerrymandering uh, uh, finagling that went on, they went over and just took Lawrence and put it into the first district. The most rural district and congressional district of Kansas now includes Lawrence, which we might add in the constitutional amendment voted for against the amendment eight to two by a margin of eight to two, I think. Yeah. Uh, so in the fourth district down in Wichita, Ron Estes is running for reelection uh, against a gentleman, a Democrat from Wichita. And, you know, I think Generally, these incumbents have a real advantage, uh, but uh, we know at least the third district race in the Kent City area is going to be competitive, and we'll just have to see how these others shake out. It's really interesting maps out there that show how the the abortion vote broke down on these congressional district lines, and the no votes won in, in all four districts. And after the, the election night, the next day is typical. You see um, parties come together. They try to unite. Everybody has messaging ready to go out. Democrats were blasting their messages all across the state. And we saw, especially in these congressional races, the Republicans just kind of went silent. Like, we, we're not sure what we can or can't say about abortion anymore. And maybe that was going to be their whole message anyway. So they got to figure out what exactly does this abortion thing mean? Democrats have to figure that out, too. And and how that could translate into the results in the midterm elections. I think partly these Republicans are going to vote, uh, excuse me, run against Joe Biden. Yeah. You know, the Joe Biden is bad, and, uh, you know, Amanda Atkins will say Joe Biden is terrible, 
And guess what? Sharice Davids is is his good buddy, and 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 so she should be blamed for gas prices. High are gas up. prices or inflation are up. Right. You can't buy a you house. It's who knows what else they'll attach to. Sharice uh, Davids is she's responsible for. Sharice Davids, on the other hand, just jumped out of the gate uh, and talked about abortion rights. You know, I just think it is having an impact on on other races as we go about and and talk about issues. It's going to be one. You know, May feels like an eternity ago. That's how far away we are from the November election. So a lot can change on you know messaging and what you know. Who knows what's going to happen over the next twelve weeks? One other quick note is that. U.S. Senator Jerry Moran is running for re-election, and he he had a primary race against a woman named Joan Farr, who's run Kansas politics before, but I think also dabbled in Oklahoma politics at the same time, so it's a little weird, but she got 90,000 votes in that primary against Jerry Moran, so he's the uh, clear favorite in that race. He will be uh, competing against uh, Mark Holland, who is the former mayor of the unified government of Wyandotte County seems to have a good grip on what he needs to do. And I think the focus of his campaign is to win the 10 largest counties in the state and not get hammered so much in other rural areas. And I think that gives him a fighting chance. So we'll see if uh, Jerry Moran can pull his crossover vote and how deep Mark Holland can go into being a bipartisan candidate. And, um, you know, Sherman, you mentioned that you know, the distance from May to now and from now to that general election. And I think it's it's also important to note that as much as people may try to connect candidates to, to Biden, um, you know, we're seeing changes on the federal level with the, the passage of the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever they're calling it now. You know, things can, things can change on the national level, too. There's no reason that Joe Biden's necessarily going to be hugely unpopular in three months. Probably, but <laughs> we don't know for sure. And then finally, um, uh, closing things out on this uh, kind of recap, Sherman, we, there are a number of kind of colorful uh, Kansas legislators, folks that we've written about, folks that we've followed, um, who will not be returning to the Kansas State House this upcoming session. Well, first off, there are a number of legislators who decided not even to bother running again uh, in a number of races um, where there's there's no challenger. But we saw on the primary election night, I think uh, eight incumbent Republicans went down, excuse me, seven incumbent Republicans, one incumbent Democrat went down in the primary for a variety of reasons. Um, some of them are, are ones who had behaved particularly poorly at times. Uh, we have Aaron Coleman, the, the Democrat, who... Uh, had some trouble with the women in his life, the girls in his life earlier earlier on, um, was just kind of a pariah within his, his party. The Democrats disowned him. Uh, he, I think, finished third in his primary race up in Wyandotte County. Uh, but we have Representative Susie Carlson, uh, who had been busted for a DUI early in the, the legislative session. Uh, Representative Cheryl Helmer, who got a lot of national attention for her hate-filled email about a transgender student, grad student at the University of Kansas. Uh, And we have Representative uh, Mark Samsel, uh, who a year ago got into some controversy when he was working as a substitute teacher. Uh, He kicked a student in in the groin uh, and later explained that it was because he believed it was part of God's plan. This is Tim again. And so that's right. Those are four candidates who sought re-election that had some real political problems on their hands. There was another group of state legislators, four Republicans, that lost their primaries. And it's interesting because these are pretty conservative people. 
and they, I believe, they lost to a more, more conservative candidates, uh, Bradley Ralph of, of Dodge. Uh, I think he voted against a transgender uh, sports bill that might have cost him. Um, you know, John Wheeler, Garden City. John Barker of Abilene, a, a long-standing legislator who was highly regarded. Uh, he must have gotten crossways with the people down in Abilene. And finally, uh, Tatum Lee, who was of Nest City, she lost to, in one of the head-to-head, due to redistricting, one of the head-to-head current representative against current representative in the blending of a district, Tatum Lee lost to uh, another state representative from Scott City. But, you know, I think the legislative leadership, the Republican leadership in the Kansas House was really interested in having Tatum Lee lose uh, because she relentlessly criticized them. One final note about this, the Kansas House on your general election ballot, all 125 seats are up. There's going to be one special Senate race. The way the Senate is handled is that they'll, they'll, all the Senate, 40 senators will be up for election or re-election in 2024. I should mention that Representative Susan Concannon did survive as a, a moderate Republican, a primary challenge from the right. Um, but for these others that you mentioned, Tim, it's just it's a reminder we see every cycle that if you you have even just one vote that leadership doesn't like or that the chamber or some other influence doesn't like, you know, that that's enough to end your career, no matter whether you're in good standing within the party. Otherwise, no matter how long you've been in the legislature, these turnover. Well, I'll say one final thing, Clay, before sure. is that. Some people talk about term limits, and Kansas absolutely does not need term limits. The turnover in the legislature can be pretty fierce. I mean, there's retirements. We have, uh, you know, about eight or nine people here who were uh, invited to leave the building, and so uh, I think I think the turnover in the legislature is is rapid enough uh, that we don't have you know 80 entrenched people that don't want to listen to anybody. So. I think term limits in Kansas would be a real waste of time, kind of based on the turnover. Well, and you can also see here, though, that when people talk about Republicans having a veto-proof majority in the the House and the Senate, um, they do, but it's also within a couple of votes. And so if you have two or three folks, buck leadership, then it's no longer a veto-proof majority. And that's, you know, if you if you wonder how people get crossways with leadership, that's... That's one of the ways. So, uh, Tim and Sherman, thanks so much for coming in to discuss the, discuss the election results. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again. Thanks, thanks a lot. Take care.